In the first section of Matthew where he's describing the things that Jesus did, we saw early on, we saw some of the things that Jesus taught, and now we're in this section of Jesus doing miracles and, and acting in different ways, and then in a couple more chapters, we're going to go back to a section of teaching. But one of the primary themes that Matthew has in this section is Jesus' authority. And we've talked about Jesus' authority over a lot of things, over the demonic, over um, weather, over illness, over sin. And today, Jesus is going to show, or Matthew's going to show us Jesus' authority over tradition. Tradition is, um, is a powerful force. Uh, the pastor and author Tom Rayner tells this story of another pastor who uh, was at a church for about nine years. And um, he, as he began to grow in his teaching abilities, he began to be more conversational when he taught. And he started out very formal. And, uh, but he slowly changed, and, and, and it drew more young people to the church, and, and it, things were growing, and things were good. And the problem was that he taught in front of this big, wooden, austere pulpit. And he just thought, you know, this doesn't really fit my preaching style. It doesn't really fit the direction we're going in the church. And so one Sunday, he had it taken out, and then he replaced it with a very sleek, metal, music stand-looking thing. Kind of like this, maybe. And the next Sunday after church, he got several letters calling for his resignation because the people were angry that they moved the pulpit. That was the tradition. That was what they had for years. There were stories told about the pulpit. You know, so-and-so's great uncle built that from a tree on his farm. And, and there is so much tied up in tradition. And it really, really riles people up when we mess with it. It's enough to make enemies. And Jesus is going to do that. He's going to make some enemies today. Uh, so in verse 9... Matthew says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the toll booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. So this is our introduction to the author of this book. This is where he inserts himself into the story. Um, up until now, the story he's been told has been passed to him by other people, but he's actually part of the story now, so he's an eyewitness. We're going to talk a little bit more about Matthew later. But he writes next, and while he was reclining at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. So this is Matthew's house. Um, Mark and Luke tell this story as well, and they uh, make it clear that it's Matthew's house. And Matthew invites his friends over for dinner. Uh, and Matthew says, many tax collectors and sinners were there. So Matthew's got an honesty about him that I really like. He's like, yeah, we're all pretty rough. We were all having dinner with Jesus, and we're just a little bit off color. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples. The Pharisees don't have the guts to ask Jesus. They ask his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So we see that the Pharisees, which we haven't really talked about the Pharisees much. Jesus mentions them in the Sermon on the Mount, but they're going to rise up as the big enemy of Jesus going forward. And the Pharisees were a group of, of men who uh, were organized about 150 years before Jesus was born. 
in a time where God's people had really forgotten about the scripture, had forgotten about um, the customs that they always followed. They, they weren't reading the word. They weren't practicing Sabbath or Passover, the other feasts. And the Pharisees said, we have to do something to fix this because God's people are going astray. And, and this movement was birthed to bring people back to God's word. And it was a good thing. But unfortunately, about 150 years later, the Pharisees are going to be Jesus' primary opponents. They've lost their way a little bit. And they're looking in on this meal, and, and to us, that seems pretty weird. If you have a bunch of friends over for dinner, and there's a bunch of people like outside eavesdropping on your dinner conversation, that's kind of bizarre. But in the first century, that wouldn't have been that weird. Um, it was totally fine to kind of insert yourself into the banquet, to listen in on the conversation, even to ask questions at a meal that you weren't a part of. And so this is what the Pharisees are doing, and, and they look in and they see Jesus. It says he's reclining at the table. That's how they would have eaten. The table would have been low, and uh, most of the time they would have reclined on their left elbow and used their right hand to eat with. And so Jesus is reclining at the table. He's probably pulling a piece of bread from a common loaf and dipping it into a common uh, plate of hummus or something else that's delicious. Uh, he's got a cup of wine in his hand. He's probably talking and laughing and having a good time with this group of people. And the Pharisees are like squinting their eyes and going, why does your master eat with tax collectors and sinners? And here's the problem with this. The, in the Pharisees' mind, eating was an incredibly intimate experience. It was something that you didn't do with just anybody because it connected you together. Uh, I was, my family was at, in Seaside, Oregon for a conference a few weeks ago, and we um, were with some friends, and we went to the sandwich shop. And the sandwich shop had like four like farm tables in it, and it was just so busy. We couldn't find a seat, but there's this one farm table that seats like eight people. There's this one guy sitting at it. And I mean, it was his table. He, he got there first, but then he goes, hey, you can sit with us, or sit with me if you want to. And I am not built that way. I would have been like, no, that's okay. Uh, but my friend was like, yeah, let's do it. And so we all sat down next to this guy and if we hadn't sat there, he would have just been a guy eating a sandwich. But because we did sit there, we know that he works for the city of Seaside. And he talked about the tourism industry in Seaside, Oregon. And he talked about how long he'd lived there and where he'd moved from and what his family was like. And all of a sudden, the intimacy of our relationship was incredibly heightened because we shared a meal together. And this is what the Pharisees saw. And, and additionally, like there's this, um, I've mentioned this before, but I love it. There's this letter uh, that uh, was written in the second century. And it's written by a guy who's writing to his friend and he's describing Christians. And in this letter, he says, um, they don't share their beds, but they share their tables. And what he's saying is, is like, unlike the Roman culture, Christians have this weird idea about sexual intimacy that says it's, it's exclusive to this marriage relationship. And that's foreign to Roman culture. You would take whoever seemed fun with you to bed. 
But he said, you know, they share their table with everyone and almost scandalously, like they just have people over and they eat with them. And And this guy is comparing these two things unfavorably. But that's the reputation that Christians had, that like they're so hospitable. And eating is such an intimate experience. It It blew people's minds that the Christians would just have dinner with people. But this is what Jesus is doing. He's having dinner with these unseemly characters. What we know about tax collectors is they were hated by the Jewish people. The the tax collector was a Jewish citizen who was working for Rome. And Rome is the occupying power in Israel. Israel is not a free nation. They're being ruled by the Roman government. They're being subjugated by the Roman army. We see all throughout the New Testament, there's Roman soldiers everywhere because there's military personnel on the streets making sure that the Jewish people don't get out of line. And so a tax collector is a traitor. He's signed up with the enemy of his people. And beyond that, the way tax collection worked is the head of the government in that area would say, you need to earn this much money. Like, let's say I'm the tax collector for Kootenai County, and I'm told I need to earn a million dollars in tax revenue. And my boss says, I don't care how you get it. You just get it. And I'm going to get it because if I don't get it, I'm not just losing my job. I'm probably getting disappeared, (laughs) if you know what I mean. And so I'm going to work really hard to get that revenue. But if I get that million dollars from all of the citizens of Kootenai County, I still haven't made any money for myself. So I'm going to take a little bit more. I'm going to take 1.1 million maybe, or maybe 1.2 million. And I'm going to take that extra money and I'm going to keep it for myself. So not only as a tax collector is this person a traitor to his own people, he's also greedy and selfish and he's extorting from his fellow citizens to become wealthy. So tax collectors have terrible reputations. And then Matthew just throws in sinners here because that's kind of a catch-all for like people that just don't measure up, people that don't function well in polite society. And, and if there's no other place for you, might as well go hang out with the tax collectors. At least they know how to have fun. And so they're all having this dinner And Jesus is there, and he's enjoying himself, and the Pharisees are just put off by this. Verse 12, when when he heard this, Jesus hears them talking, he said, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus quotes the Hebrew scriptures. He quotes Hosea 6.6. And the gist of Hosea 6 is that there's this way of life that God has established for his people. There's a set of rituals, a set of rules. And the point of all of these things is to point the people back to God, is to help them flourish and grow in their relationship with God. But the people in Hosea's time had forgotten this. They were so focused on the rules, they forgot to actually love the Lord. 
And Jesus says, the thing that's more important than your sacrifices, than following the rituals and the rules, is showing mercy, is loving people. God says in Hosea, I don't want you to just follow the rules. I want you to love me and love others. And the Pharisees are so concerned about keeping themselves ritually pure by not associating with bad people that they're actually committing a great evil by ignoring those of their own people that are in distress. I mean, if, if I'm in a place in my life where I am going to sign my soul to the occupying army and extort money from my own people, man, I'm, I'm in need. Like, there's some, somebody should, I would hope would pursue me and say, hey, what's going on with you? Why are you choosing this path? Isn't there a better way to do this? If you're in the category of sinner, like, whatever that means, whatever you imagine that to be, like those are the people that the Pharisees, the, the group that was so concerned about following God well, they should have been pursuing these people and they weren't. Jesus says that I came to call the, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. And he's not saying that the Pharisees are righteous. He's actually mocking them a little bit. But he is saying that the sinners he's having dinner with, they know that they're in need. I mean, Matthew writes this down and he, he calls his friends, yeah, the tax collectors and the sinners, that's who we are. They're people that would say, you know what, there's something screwed up inside of me. The Pharisees had structured their lives in a way so that they didn't have to think about that. They didn't have to deal with with what's broken in them. They could ignore it because they, they had all of these rituals and rules that they could follow and all of these boxes that they could check to prevent them from actually looking at their souls. And one of the ways they did that was by ostracizing other people. It's funny, like you talk to people in the church and most of the time, you know, how are you doing? I'm fine. How was your week? It was good. My favorite one is, how are you? I'm better than I deserve. That's good. <laughs> but every so often, maybe you have a friend like this that's like, oh man, let me tell you. I, I mean, I, was, I, I watched a movie that I shouldn't have watched and I wasn't guarding my eyes and I, and I, I, I yelled at my kids and at work, I, I just I slacked off all week long. And, and you just on and on and on and on. And what that does, at least in my life, is I go, man, I haven't even thought about any of those things all week. Maybe, what, have I, what movies have I watched? How am I treating my kids? I don't even know. Because when you're around people that are honest about their brokenness, it helps you to be more honest about your brokenness. But the Pharisees didn't have to do that because they just pushed all of that away. And so then in, John, in, in verse 14... Matthew says, then John's disciples came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? So John the Baptist, we, we saw him earlier in the book. He's the forerunner of Jesus. He comes maybe six, nine months before Jesus comes on the scene and he just starts telling people, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. God is, is doing something in our day. The Savior is on his way. 
And so he has this, this following that springs up around him. And Jesus shows up, and we actually read that John says, hey, this guy's the Messiah. You all should follow him. But not everybody does. People like John. He's, he's exciting. He lives in the desert and dresses crazy and he eats bugs. And I mean, it's kind of, he's kind of a cool guy. And at this point, he's in prison. We're going to read about how he got into prison in a few chapters. Matthew's going to talk about it. But right now, he's in prison and his disciples, the, the people that stuck with him who didn't go with Jesus, they're fasting. They're, they're mourning. They, they don't know what's going on. Their leader is in jail. It would have been typical, it would have been tradition for good Jewish people to fast twice a week. And I think about that and I go like, two whole days a week of not eating seems really crazy to me. But this is what they did. And they say, why don't, Jesus, why don't you guys fast? We're fasting. Why aren't you fasting? Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. So fasting is often connected to reflection, um, introspection, and even mourning. These are all reasons why you would fast. And, and this, is, this makes sense for what John's followers are going through. John is in prison, their leader is in jail, and they don't know what to do. So they fast. The Pharisees would have also fasted twice a week, and, and they're leading God's people through this time where they're subjected to the Roman Empire. They're under occupation. And these are both groups of people that are in mourning, awaiting the day when God will redeem them. They're both waiting for that time when everything will be made right. N.T. Wright says, while other movements, including that of John the Baptist, were waiting for a new day to dawn, Jesus believed that the sun had risen. See, Jesus had a different perspective. He didn't come saying the kingdom of heaven is coming. He came saying the kingdom of heaven is, near, is here. I am the king. I am bringing this new way of life about. And so in this metaphor of the wedding, he says, you don't, you don't go to a wedding sad. You go to a wedding and celebrate. When I was a lot younger, I, uh, there, was this, there was this girl I knew. And uh, I mean, she was kind of pretty. And I, I, I had a kind of, I was, I was rooting for her to uh, become a Christian. And I thought she, I thought she was. I wanted her to be because I liked her. But then she, she got involved with this other guy who wasn't as gentlemanly as I was. And uh, she started making some choices that, that I was just really bummed out about. And I, I was, I mean, and I, I was a teenager and I was really, really bummed out about it. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to fast. I'm going to seek the Lord and fast on her behalf and see if God just intervenes in her life. And so I started fasting. And the weekend came, and my family was going to a wedding. And my parents found out that like, I wasn't eating. And they're like, what are you doing? And I finally said, well, I'm fasting because of this girl. And, 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 and they're like, okay, well, you have to stop fasting by Saturday because you have to eat at the wedding. And I, and I didn't understand that. Like, no, I'm, this is holy, I'm fasting. 
But Jesus' point here is that you don't go to a wedding and fast. You go to a wedding and you party. The groom is here. I'm the groom, Jesus says. I'm here. There's no reason to mourn. There's no reason to reflect because this is the time to be glad. And he says, in the future, there will be a time to fast. Because see, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. And then after miraculously rising from the dead and spending some time with his disciples, he's going to ascend to heaven. And there will be times, he says, that his disciples will reflect, will mourn, and will fast. And we're in this, the middle of this Lent season, and a lot of people who are celebrating Lent, they fast during Lent because it's a time of reflection. It's a time of introspection. Uh, again, we've got all these posters of the Station on the Cross on the walls, and they're all dark themes about the suffering and the death of Jesus. And Lent is a time where we can enter into that and remember those things. And fasting is often a part of that. And, and so Jesus says that there will be a time when my people will fast, but not today. And so then, then Jesus starts talking about some traditions, the idea of tradition. The Pharisees' refusal to eat with sinners and John's disciples fasting, these weren't commands of God. These were traditions that sprung up over time. Year after year, people just did things over and over again, and it just became normal. In The Fiddler on the Roof, Tevia, the, the lead, is talking about tradition in the famous song, and, and he says, we always keep our heads covered and always wear a little prayer shawl. This shows our constant devotion to God. You may ask, how did this tradition start? I'll tell you. I don't know. And that's oftentimes how traditions work. Like, we just, why do we do this? Well, this is how we've always done it. Why? I don't know. We just, this is how we do it. And Jesus has the authority to discard tradition. He says, no, we're not going to do it that way anymore. And it makes people angry. It makes enemies really fast. So Jesus says in verse 16, no one patches an old garment with unshrunk cloth because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. My wife is a seamstress. She makes dresses and pillowcases and curtains and whatever else she can find time to do. And the very first thing she does when she buys fabric is she washes it because it shrinks. And Jesus is saying, like, you can't just take a new piece of cloth and put it on an old patch because it's going to shrink when you watch it and it's going to tear the cloth even more. This new Jesus movement, it's agile, it's changing, it's shifting. It's in some ways unstable. Jesus says, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head earlier. Like, we don't know where we're going to sleep tonight. Tradition brings a stability that can sometimes become an idol. It's, sometimes it's really comforting to know that this is the way it's always been. This is how we always do it. And then somebody comes along and they just mess that up, and it's disconcerting. Verse 17, 
And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the skins burst, the wine spills out, and the skins are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. So the way, the way you make wine back then is you, you take fresh leather skins, you sew them up, usually goat skins. It's kind of weird. I saw some pictures. They, they kept like the goat skin whole, so the wine bottle was goat-shaped. I don't know why, <laughs> um, but that's what they did. And so they sewed it up, and they filled it with unfermented new wine, and they'd seal it. And then over time, the wine would ferment, the different um, bacterias and yeasts and things in the wine that would um, create the alcohol in the wine would bubble and expand, and the fresh, pliable leather would expand with it. But if you took new wine and you put it into an old wineskin, a, a leather vessel that was old and stiff, when that wine expanded, it would break the leather. And so Jesus is saying, he's doing a new thing, and the old forms, the, religious, the Jewish religious system, it just wasn't going to work anymore. It wasn't that it was bad at the time, it served a purpose but it wasn't compatible with what Jesus was doing now. And so while, as, we, as we close, I want to talk a little bit more about some things having to do with tradition and maybe get a little, little more practical about tradition. And so I've got five observations about tradition if you're a note taker. The first one is that that what Jesus is doing here is always a new thing. He's tearing down walls. He's building bridges. He's serving people on the margins of society. He's welcoming people into his community that other people are shunning. Like no matter how much time goes by, every time the church does that, it's crazy. Like generation after generation after generation of Jesus people have read this book and went, you know, we should be living our lives in such a way that we welcome people into our community. And unfortunately, other church people are usually the ones that go like, whoa, we can't be doing that. We can't hang out with those people. Those people are bad. And without fail, this thing that Jesus does, this new wine is crazy whenever we do it. Observation number two, innovation and tradition have more in common than not. Jesus' metaphors here are important. He says, you don't patch old cloth with a new piece of fabric. He doesn't say, you don't patch old cloth with silly putty or fig leaves or some other random thing. New cloth and old cloth are kind of the same thing. They're a little different. They're very similar. New wine and old wine are still wine. Even when new things come along, when God does new things, there's a resemblance to what's gone on before. A lot of times uh, we will use this new wine verse to rationalize just crazy things in the church. Just absurd things that are completely foreign to the world of Scripture. And, and I don't think that's super helpful because even 
Jesus' new wine is deeply connected to the Hebrew scriptures and the prophecies about the Messiah and the word of God that said that he he would come and he would do these very things, even if it rubbed people the wrong way. So we need to be careful if we're excited about being innovative that we just don't do something crazy for craziness sake. Uh, Observation number three, new wine often looks strange. This is kind of the opposite of number two. Um, I I grew up, and I've heard this a lot. There's this this phrase that says, if it's true, it isn't new, and if it's new, it isn't true. And that can be helpful. Like, if you're reading the Bible and you see something that's, like, amazing and no one else has ever seen it in the 2,000 years of church history, maybe you should second-guess yourself there. Maybe you misunderstood something. But sometimes what God is doing now looks weird, looks unfamiliar, and that can be okay. Sometimes old truth is packaged in a new way for a new generation. Um, my, My parents' generation would have asked the question, have you been born again? Um... Some of the up-and-coming Christians today would say, are you an apprentice of the way of Jesus? It's the same question. Sounds different. But if you hear that second one and go, that's not what I understand and it must be bad, well, then you're missing out on on, on potentially something that's life-giving. And then sometimes we find new truth because we have better information. I'll tell you a story about a guy named Erasmus. Erasmus was um, a scholar in the 1500s. And in 1516, a long time ago, he published a Greek New Testament. So the the New Testament was originally written in Greek. um, But by the 1500s, we lost almost all of that Greek writing. The Bible had been transmitted in Latin for about a thousand years. So everybody had a Latin Bible, but Erasmus wanted to get back to the original language. And so he wanted to build a Greek New Testament. And so he got all of the Greek manuscripts that he could find. He got six old Greek manuscripts. And and between the six, he compiled a Greek New Testament. Unfortunately, out of his six manuscripts, the last six verses of Revelation weren't in them. So nobody knew how the story ended. Um, (laughs) So what he had to do was he took his Latin Bible and then he retranslated the Latin back into Greek in those last six verses just so he could make his publishing deadline. Uh, And this came to be called the Textus Receptus, which means received text in Latin. And, And this is the Greek New Testament that the King James Bible was translated from. And it's a good translation. It's stood the test of time for 400 years. But if you read the King James or the New King James, and then you hold it up against the English Standard Version or the New American Standard Version or the Christian Standard Bible, which I teach from, there's going to be some differences. And the reason there's some differences is because in these modern translations, We don't just have six Greek manuscripts. We have 5,800. We have almost, what, a thousand times as much data about the Bible because of 
archaeology than they did in the 1500s. And so when, when you see like there's some differences, well, we, have, we have so much more to work with now than we did then. And yeah, it might be new that this verse reads a little differently, but it's better. And so sometimes we find new truth because we have better information. Observation number four, um, the idol of tradition isn't just for older people. I think this is important. If, if you're younger and you think like, yeah, the last generation just needs to let go of all of their sacred cows because we're moving forward and doing new things, doesn't take very long to create a tradition. We've been meeting here for, what, nine months? And, and we, somebody opens in prayer, and then we do three songs, then somebody gets up and reads the scripture, and at the end of the scripture, they say, this is the word of the Lord. And then somebody teaches for like 45 minutes, and then they pray, and then we do three more songs. You know, and so like every single week, we're building traditions. And if we change our traditions, it freaks people out a little bit. It doesn't take long to create a tradition. It doesn't mean, and it's, it's not just something that an older generation struggles with. We all are tempted to make tradition an idol. And my fifth observation, the last thing I want to talk about this morning, I want to go back to verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the toll booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. Jesus isn't setting aside tradition just to be innovative. He's doing the things that he's doing because of Matthew, because of the tax collectors and sinners at Matthew's house. Jesus is making accommodations because he loves Matthew, because he's pursuing Matthew and his friends. His tradition is not as important as his love for these people. Matthew writes, he said to him, follow me, and he got up and followed him. The word got up could also be translated arose, and it's the same word that Matthew uses to describe Jesus' resurrection from the dead. We learn in other places in the New Testament that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, but we are brought to new life through Christ. Uh, You can't put too fine a point on it, but I wonder if Matthew's thinking, this is the day that I arose. This is the day that I was given new life. Jesus said, follow me, and I got up, and I followed him. The thing about tradition, and and we do it it here, we we do it locally, we, we have our communion table, which is the oldest Christian tradition. We've been talking about Lent, which is another long-standing tradition. We sing songs that are several hundred years old. We sing songs that are a year old. We're making traditions as we go as a church community, and all of those traditions help bind us together. But they can also alienate people on the outside. 
And Jesus sets aside these traditions to bring people in. So we have to be aware of that and balance the good traditions that we've inherited and the good traditions that we're creating. We have to balance that with a willingness to set them aside for the benefit of other people and welcoming outsiders into the community. And that's hard to do because we're all really fond of our favorite traditions. But that's what we see Jesus do because he wants to pursue Matthew, his tax collector friends, and the sinners that are part of their group. He's going to pursue them. He's going to eat with them, even though it's not what you're supposed to do. He's not going to focus on fasting. He's going to focus on celebrating because he's bringing about the kingdom of God. So we're going to we're going to do some of that too. We're going to keep doing some traditions. Every week we we take communion together. We remember the body of Jesus broken and the blood shed. We sing together to remind us of who God is and what he's done for us. We pray, we worship, we we get the fact that we gather weekly. These are all traditions that bind us together. But my hope would be that we would be aware of the ways that those blind us, maybe, to the needs of other people in our community. And and are there ways that we can maybe not get rid of our traditions? Maybe some of them need to be gotten rid of completely. But at least set them aside. And like Jesus says, prefer mercy over sacrifice. The most important thing is loving others and loving God and all of the rituals that are built to help us do that, they come second. And so as we, as we sing, as we worship together, the communion table's open. Uh, I would invite you to uh, come make use of it as you reflect on these things. God, thanks for your word. Thanks for an opportunity to study, to hear your voice. God, thank you that you are eager and willing to set aside traditions when it doesn't make sense. God, I pray that we would be people that are aware of those that are outside of our community of faith. We're aware that, God, sometimes the things we do seem a little weird. God, help us to lean into our traditions, to learn from them, to grow through them, but to not make them idols in our lives. Help us to be flexible and agile. Help us to be like new cloth so that whenever Jesus says we're going this way, we're doing this thing, we are ready and pliable and willing to go with him. And I pray that you would just... uh, speak as we worship and um, continue to work on our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church 
at revelationcda.com.